Hello and welcome to the Anglo-Saxons in their own words. My name is Danny. In today's episode, we're going to be starting at the very beginning, with Bede and his Historia. Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People, or Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum, is one of the most important, if not the most important work of British history composed during the period following the Roman evacuation of Britain and prior to the Norman Conquest. I'd like to start today's episode by telling you a bit more about our author. Bede is really somewhat of a national hero, and has been lauded for his detailed research and his commitment to facts at a time when history was hardly a rigidly defined discipline. Sometimes referred to as the father of English history, his Historia is one of the very few sources we have to inform us of life in Anglo-Saxon England. Bede is a skillful storyteller, and his passion for teaching others was only likely rivaled by his passion for the Christian faith. So who was Bede? Well, much of what we know about him actually comes from the final chapter in his own history. He was born in the territory of the twin monasteries Wearmouth and Jarrah in the kingdom of Northumbria. Bede, at just seven years of age, was sent to be brought up in the church, and by the age of 30, he'd become a fully-fledged priest. He's believed to have completed his history in 731 AD at the age of 59. He spent the majority of his life confined to the monastery in which he was brought up, and devoted his life to learning, teaching, and writing. Bede believed the purpose of history was to instruct and edify the reader. Now, this approach could inevitably lead to some bias. However, at the time, as Ernst Breizak writes, quote, such purposes were perceived not as endangering, but as enhancing historical truth, end quote. Whatever his intentions, Bede was tedious in noting his sources. Indeed, he prefaces his history with the following, quote, to avoid any doubts as to the accuracy of what I have written in the minds of yourself or of any who may listen to or read this history, allow me to briefly state the authorities upon whom I depend. End quote. Though the stories our ancestors left for us may have biases, and at some points may even border fiction, they're still crucial to understanding how our ancestors perceived the world around them. Primary sources might not always be as reliable, quote-unquote, as modern scholarship when it comes to determining what actually happened. But they still have a lot to tell us about the past. 19th century historian Thomas Miller had this to say on the subject of fact and fiction as regards our primary sources. Quote, Although we may doubt many passages in the writings of this, our earliest historian, it would be uncharitable to the memory of the dead even to entertain a thought that he willfully falsified a single fact. End quote. Although he's talking about Gildas in this instance, he invokes Bede in the following paragraph. In essence, Miller is imploring us not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and that's precisely the reason I wanted to start this podcast. Bede's history is divided into five books. For much of book one, Bede relies heavily on the writings of other historians, namely Pliny, Salinus, Orosius, Eutropius, and Gildas. As he progresses to covering more contemporary events, however, Bede seems to depend more on his own knowledge of certain events filling in the gaps where necessary with what he cites as, quote, the faithful testimony of innumerable witnesses. The translation I'll be reading from in this podcast is largely based on the work done by Dr. Giles in 1842, though it's been significantly updated since then by various other editors. Now, we won't be covering everything Bede's written about, but we will try and follow the story of Anglo-Saxon England chronologically, starting with today's episode on the origins of Britain and the Roman invasion. I'll be reading to you directly from Bede's history, and I'll be doing my best not to interrupt the story, but to save my comments for before or after we've read the text.
I'm also going to try and say everything correctly. Though my Italian is better than my Latin, and though I fully intend to someday, I haven't yet had the opportunity to study Old English. So, no promises. Okay, that's a long enough introduction to today's episode, so let's get started in hearing from the Venerable Bede. Today's reading will come from Book 1, and we'll start at Chapter 1 and end with Chapter 6. Here we go. Chapter 1. Of the Situation of Britain and Ireland, and of their ancient inhabitants. Britain, an island in the Atlantic, formerly called Albion, lies to the northwest, facing, though at a considerable distance, the coasts of Germany, France, and Spain, which form the greatest part of Europe. It extends 800 miles in length towards the north, and is 200 miles in breadth, except where several promontories extend further in breadth, by which its compass is made to be 4,875 miles. To the south lies Belgic Gaul. To its nearest shore there is an easy passage from the city of Rutubi Portis, by the English now corrupted into Chester. The distance from here across the sea to Gisoriacum, the nearest shore in the territory of the Marini, is 50 miles, or as some writers say, 450 furlongs. On the other side of the island, where it opens upon the boundless ocean, it has the islands called Orcades. Britain is rich in grain and trees, and it is well adapted for feeding cattle and beasts of burden. It also produces vines in some places, and has plenty of land and waterfowl of divers sorts. It is remarkable also for rivers abounding in fish and plentiful springs. It has the greatest plenty of salmon and eels, seals are also frequently taken, and dolphins, as also whales besides many sorts of shellfish, such as mussels, in which are often found excellent pearls of all colors, red, purple, violet, and green, but chiefly white. There is also a great abundance of snails, of which the scarlet dye is made, a most beautiful red, which never fades with the heat of the sun or exposure to rain, but the older it is, the more beautiful it becomes. It has both salt and hot springs, and from them flow rivers which furnish hot baths, proper for all ages and both sexes, in separate places, according to their requirements. For water, as St. Basil says, receives the quality of heat when it runs along certain metals and becomes not only hot, but scalding. Britain is rich also in veins of metals, as copper, iron, lead, and silver. It produces a great deal of excellent jet, which is black and sparkling, and burns when put to the fire, and when set on fire, drives away serpents. Being warmed with rubbing, it attracts whatever is applied to it, like amber. The island was formerly distinguished by 28 famous cities, besides innumerable forts, which were all strongly secured with walls, towers, gates, and bars. And, because it lies under the North Pole, the nights are light in summer, so that at midnight the beholders are often in doubt whether the evening twilight still continues, or that of the morning has come since the sun at night returns to the east in the northern regions without passing far beneath the earth. For this reason, the days are of great length in summer, and on the other hand, the nights in winter are eighteen hours long, for the sun then withdraws into southern parts. In like manner, the nights are very short in summer, and the days in winter, that is, only six equinoctial hours, whereas in Armenia, Macedonia, Italy, and other countries of the same latitude, the longest day or night extends but to fifteen hours, and the shortest to nine. There are in the island at present, following the number of the books in which the divine law was written, 
five languages of different nations employed in the study and confession of the one selfsame knowledge, which is of the highest truth and true sublimity, to wit, English, British, Scottish, Pictish, and Latin, the last having become common to all by the study of the scriptures. But at first this island had no other inhabitants but the Britons, from whom it derived its name, and who, coming over into Britain, as is reported, from Armorica, possessed themselves of the southern parts thereof. Starting from the south, they had occupied the greater part of the island when it happened, that the nation of the Picts, putting to sea from Scythia, as is reported, in a few ships of war, and being driven by the winds beyond the bounds of Britain, came to Ireland and landed on its northern shores. There, finding the nation of the Scots, they begged to be allowed to settle among them, but could not succeed in obtaining their request. Ireland is the largest island next to Britain, and lies to the west of it, but as it is shorter than Britain to the north, so, on the other hand, it runs out far beyond it to the south, over against the northern part of Spain, though a wide sea lies between them. The Picts then, as has been said, arriving in this island by sea, desired to have a good place granted them in which they might settle. The Scots answered that the island could not contain them both, but, quote, we can give you good counsel, said they, whereby you may know what to do, we know there is another island, not far from ours, to the eastward, which we often see at a distance when the days are clear. If you will go thither, you can obtain settlements, or, if any should oppose you, we will help you. The Picts then, accordingly, sailing over into Britain, began to inhabit the northern parts thereof, for the Britons had possessed themselves of the southern. Now the Picts had no wives, and asked them of the Scots, who would not consent to grant them upon any other terms than that when any question should arise, they should choose a king from the female royal race rather than from the male, which custom, as is well known, has been observed among the Picts to this day. In process of time, Britain, besides the Britons and the Picts, received a third nation, the Scots, who, migrating from Ireland under their leader, Ruda, either by fair means or by force of arms, secured to themselves those settlements among the Picts which they still possess. From the name of their commander, they are to this day called Dal Rudini, for in their language, Dal signifies a part. Ireland is broader than Britain and has a much healthier and milder climate, for the snow scarcely ever lies there above three days, and no man makes hay in the summer for winter's provision, or builds stables for his beasts of burden. No reptiles are found there, and no snake can live there, for though snakes are often carried thither out of Britain, as soon as the ship comes near the shore and the scent of the air reaches them, they die. On the contrary, almost all things in the island are efficacious against poison. In truth, we have known that when men have been bitten by serpents, the scrapings of leaves of books that were brought out of Ireland, being put into water and given them to drink, have immediately absorbed the spreading poison and assuaged the swelling. The island abounds in milk and honey, nor is there any lack of vines, fish, or fowl and it is noted for the hunting of stags and roe deer. It is properly the country of the Scots, who migrating from thence, as has been said, formed the third nation in Britain in addition to the Britons and the Picts. There is a very large gulf of the sea, which formerly divided the nation of the Britons from the Picts. It runs from the west far into the land, where, to this day, stands a strong city of the Britons, called al -Cluith. The Scots, arriving on the north side of this bay, settled themselves there. Chapter 2. How Caius Julius Caesar was the first Roman that came into Britain. Now Britain had never been visited by the Romans, 
and was entirely unknown to them before the time of Caius Julius Caesar, who, in the year 693 after the foundation of Rome, but the 60th year before the incarnation of our Lord, was consul with Lucius Bibulus. While he was making war upon the Germans and the Gauls, who were divided only by the river Rhine, he came into the province of the Marini, whence is the nearest and shortest passage into Britain. Here, having provided about 80 ships of burden and fast sailing vessels, he sailed over into Britain, where, being first roughly handled in a battle, and then caught in a storm, he lost a considerable part of his fleet, no small number of foot soldiers, and almost all his cavalry. Returning into Gaul, he put his legions into winter quarters, and gave orders for building 600 sail of both sorts. With these, he again crossed over early in spring into Britain, but, whilst he was marching with the army against the enemy, the ships, riding at anchor, were caught in a storm, and either dashed one against another, or driven upon the sands and wrecked. Forty of them were lost, the rest were, with much difficulty, repaired. Caesar's cavalry was, at the first encounter, defeated by the Britons, and there, Labinus, the tribune, was slain. In the second engagement, with great hazard to his men, he defeated the Britons and put them to flight. Thence he proceeded to the river Thames, where a great multitude of the enemy had posted themselves on the farther side of the river, under the command of Cassivellaunus, and fenced the bank of the river and almost all the ford under water with sharp stakes. The remains of these are to be seen to this day, apparently about the thickness of a man's thigh, cased with lead, and fixed immovably in the bottom of the river. This being perceived and avoided by the Romans, the barbarians, not able to stand the charge of the legions, hid themselves in the woods, whence they grievously harassed the Romans with repeated sallies. In the meantime, the strong state of the Trinovantes, with their commander Androgius, surrendered to Caesar, giving him forty hostages. Many other cities, following their example, made a treaty with the Romans. Guided by them, Caesar at length, after severe fighting, took the town of Cassivellaunus, situated between two marshes, fortified by sheltering woods, and plentifully furnished with all necessaries. After this, Caesar returned from Britain into Gaul, but he had no sooner put his legions into winter quarters than he was suddenly beset and distracted with wars and sudden risings on every side. Chapter 3. How Claudius, the second of the Romans who came into Britain, brought the islands Orcades into subjection to the Roman Empire, and Vespasian, sent by him, reduced the Isle of Wight under the dominion of the Romans. In the year of Rome 798, Claudius, fourth emperor from Augustus, being desirous to approve himself a prince beneficial to the Republic and eagerly bent upon war and conquest on every side, undertook an expedition into Britain which, as it appeared, was roused to rebellion by the refusal of the Romans to give up certain deserters. No one before or after Julius Caesar had dared to land upon the island. Claudius crossed over to it, and within a very few days, without any fighting or bloodshed, the greater part of the island was surrendered into his hands. He also added to the Roman Empire the Orcades, which lie in the ocean beyond Britain. And, returning to Rome in the sixth month after his departure, he gave his son the title of Britannicus. This war he concluded in the fourth year of his reign, which is the forty-sixth from the incarnation of our Lord, in which year there came to pass a most grievous famine in Syria, which is recorded in the Acts of the Apostles to have been foretold by the prophet Agabus. Vespasian, who was emperor after Nero, being sent into Britain by the same Claudius, brought also under the Roman dominion the Isle of Wight, which is close to Britain on the south and is about thirty miles in length from east to west, 
and 12 from north to south, being 6 miles distant from the southern coast of Britain at the east end, and 3 at the west. Nero, succeeding Claudius in the empire, undertook no wars at all, and therefore, among countless other disasters brought by him upon the Roman state, he almost lost Britain, for in this time two most notable towns were there taken and destroyed. Chapter 4. How Lucius, king of Britain, writing to Pope Eleutherus, desired to be made a Christian. In the year of our Lord 156, Marcus Antoninus Verus, the fourteenth from Augustus, was made emperor, together with his brother, Aurelius Commodus. In their time, whilst the holy Eleutherus presided over the Roman church, Lucius, king of Britain, sent a letter to him, entreating that by a mandate from him he might be made a Christian. He soon obtained his pious request, and the Britons preserved the faith, which they had received, uncorrupted and entire, in peace and tranquility, until the time of the emperor Diocletian. Chapter 5 How the emperor Severus divided from the rest by a rampart that part of Britain which had been recovered. In the year of our Lord 189, Severus, an African born at Leptis, in the province of Tripolis, became emperor. He was the seventeenth from Augustus and reigned seventeen years. Being naturally of a harsh disposition and engaged in many wars, he governed the state vigorously, but with much trouble. Having been victorious in all the grievous civil wars which happened in his time, he was drawn into Britain by the revolt of almost all the confederated tribes, and after many great and severe battles, he thought fit to divide that part of the island which he had recovered from the other unconquered nations, not with a wall, as some imagine, but with a rampart. For a wall is made of stones, but a rampart, with which camps are fortified to repel the assaults of enemies, is made of sods, cut out of the earth and raised high above the ground like a wall, having in front of it the trench whence the sods were taken, with strong stakes of wood fixed above it. Thus Severus drew a great trench and strong rampart, fortified with several towers from sea to sea. And there, at York, he fell sick afterwards and died, leaving two sons, Bassianus and Gita, of whom Gita died, adjudged an enemy of the state, but Bassianus, having taken the surname of Antonius, obtained the empire. Chapter 6 Of the reign of Diocletian and how he persecuted the Christians In the year of our Lord 286, Diocletian, the 33rd from Augustus, and chosen emperor by the army, reigned twenty years, and created Maximian, surnamed Herculius, his colleague in the empire. In their time, one Carousius, of very mean birth, but a man of great ability and energy, being appointed to guard the sea coasts, then infested by the Franks and Saxons, acted more to the prejudice than to the advantage of the commonwealth, by not restoring to its owners any of the booty taken from the robbers, but keeping all to himself, thus giving rise to the suspicion that by intentional neglect he suffered the enemy to infest the frontiers. When, therefore, an order was sent by Maximian that he should be put to death, he took upon him the imperial purple and possessed himself of Britain, and having most valiantly conquered and held it for the space of seven years, he was at length put to death by the treachery of his associate Electus. The usurper, having thus got the island from Carousius, held it three years, and was then vanquished by Aesulpiodotus, the captain of the Praetorian Guards, who thus at the end of ten years restored Britain to the Roman Empire. Meanwhile, Diocletian in the east, and Maximian Herculius in the west, commanded the churches to be destroyed, and the Christians were persecuted and slain. This persecution was the tenth since the reign of Nero, 
and was more lasting and cruel than almost any before it, for it was carried on incessantly for the space of ten years, with burning of churches, proscription of innocent persons, and the slaughter of martyrs. Finally, Britain also attained to the great glory of bearing faithful witness to God. Alright, I know that's a lot to take in, but it's not necessarily stuff we all need to remember and know. It's just kind of to give us an introduction to this era and an introduction to Bede's storytelling. That being said, that concludes the readings for today's episode. Hopefully that gives you a bit of an introduction to Roman Britain and a bit of an idea of how the Anglo-Saxons perceived their adopted country's history and the origins of how it came to be. Next episode is where it's going to get a little bit more interesting, um, but I wanted to break this up into a few different uh, pieces so that it wouldn't get too confusing and so that we wouldn't do too much at once. But the next story we're going to be reading deals with St. Alban, whom you may have heard of. So that's chapter 7, and it really is a fascinating story, like so many others in this history that Bede's written, and I'm really looking forward to getting to share that with you and talking about some of the meaning behind it. Okay, I gave you guys quite a bit of background before this episode today started, so that's going to be it for today. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at theanglosaxonpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And I'll see you next week for the next episode. Thanks for listening.